I do want to wish from the bottom of my, of my heart you ladies out there a very happy Mother's Day. My own mother was one of the most precious people in my life. And any good in me is largely due to her. I recognize that with the, the content of our sermon today, the content and the application has been traditionally pointed more towards men. Uh, and, and it's still true even, even in today's culture. But I want you ladies to know that scripture says that what you do in the home with your children is precious. It, it is a good work. And don't, don't, don't hear me say good work and think that's just some idle word. It is a beautiful, good work. Influencing your children's lives, raising them up, raising them up in the fear of the Lord, being a, a help, a help meet and a, and a partner with your husband. It is a beautiful thing that you ladies do. And so from the bottom of my heart, happy Mother's Day. Deuteronomy 34. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain and the valley of Jericho, the city of the palm trees, as far as Zoar. And then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. <coughs> I have let it, you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel looked for Moses in the plains of Moab, 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, and all his servants, and all his land, and for all the mighty power, and all the great terror, which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we read from this closing chapter of Deuteronomy that Moses died according to your word. He did not die because he was an old man. 
His life did not leave him because of natural causes. He died because he transgressed you and because he was a sinner. And why is that? Why do we need to know this? Because you have raised up a second Moses. Moses himself said back in Deuteronomy 18.15 that the Lord would raise up a prophet like me. And in these words we see that we are reminded that this prophet had not at the time that this last chapter, obviously not written by Moses, but we see by the time that it was written, this prophet was still anticipated. He was still coming. We have our second Moses, not in Joshua, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us, who has given us a better covenant, a covenant that is that gives us better blessings, not not contingent upon our obedience, but contingent upon His own. Bless the Lord Jesus Christ, each one of us here for the good mercy and grace that he has given us in himself.
all because employees were st stealing from their employers. Theft is a major problem in our society, and that's a, it's a major problem in our society because it's a major problem within our fallen human nature. Stealing, as with all of these other vices listed in verses 25 to 32, are inherent to human nature. That is, they develop naturally. I mean, ha have you ever noticed that there are certain bad behaviors you don't have to teach your children to do? On the contrary, you need to train them to, to do otherwise. You don't have to teach your children to steal or to become sinfully angry or to lie or to use their words to tear one another down. And maybe they can refine the process by learning a thing or two from mom or dad. But generally, these are qualities found everywhere, in every child, in every people group, in every time, because they grow out of a sinful heart and they manifest in a sinful life both of which we need to be saved from. And being saved from them, they're being saved people, redeemed people. There is now an expectation placed on us. An expectation that as Christians, wherever we find traces of our old ways still abiding, that we respond in repentance. That's the theme of, of, of this whole miniseries. We respond by stopping that old way of living when and where it props its head up, and we replace it with the new way of living that is consistent with our Christian calling, so that our walk lines up with our talk and our practice matches our position. Paul is now touching on the third area of life where you and I can still disrupt the unity of Christian fellowship that the Lord so values. And, and, and if you're not convinced of that, you need to be. The Lord Jesus Christ, if you recall, when we were going through Mark, and in all each of the Gospels, it got under the Lord's skin that his disciples were at one another's throats. It, it grieved him that they were not a united band. The Lord values unity among his people and his family. And you and I, when, when these vices pop up, you and I can disrupt that unity by not repenting. So this third area is the area of theft and stealing. Theft and stealing. The first point we'll look at today is the behavior to stop. He, Paul says, stop stealing. <laughs> right there. Doubly alliterated. You're welcome, Leslie. Doubly alliterated. Stop stealing in verse 28. Also in verse 28, start sweating. And then also in verse 28, start supporting. Stop stealing, start sweating, start supporting, but don't stutter. Let's read what Paul has to say in verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, 
so that he will have something to share with one who has need. First, Paul says to stop stealing. And that God's people shouldn't steal is nothing new to the New Testament. That we are not to steal from others and rather to respect other people's belongings. I would say that is something basic Mm -hmm. to biblical ethics. Mm -hmm. It is basic to biblical ethics. The, The entire second half of the Ten Commandments which is really concerned with with how one treats his fellow man, says this plainly and unequivocally, you shall not steal. Not unambiguous, it's right there, the Eighth Commandment. And there are even a number of sundry laws that are then dedicated to uh, uh, and expand upon what does it what happens if you whether it's intentional or whether it's accidental what happens if 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 you damage or you lose uh, other people's property I mean really the same effect uh, of, of stealing what happens all all of those sundry laws are an extrapolation upon this principle that you are to respect other people's stuff. The New Testament recites that second table in its entirety twice, Mark 10, 19, where Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler and Paul lists it in Romans 13, 9. And the principle is reiterated in a number of other places. And so, you know, I was a little surprised that Paul feels the need to repeat something that is so basic and is so elementary, so so fundamental, uh, fundamentally basic in this grand epistle, but here he is, he's doing it. And I think he's doing it for two, for two reasons. He knows that Christians can still sin. Christians can still sin. And when they sin, especially in, in these categories from verses 25 to 32... That has a negative impact on the unity and the purity of Christian fellowship. Negative impact on the unity and the purity of Christian fellowship in the body of Christ. And as stated, God doesn't like that. It bothers him. It grieves his heart. Most of you being parents, you know there are things that, that don't really bother you. Little quirks, little mannerisms that it's easy to let go. And then there are things that get under your skin. A lack of unity. A disruption in the unity of the people that, that God has brought together. Remember a couple months ago we looked at how the bringing together of this people was a triune participation? If you don't, go back and look at that. The Father was involved with it. The Son was involved with it. The Spirit is involved with it. It's important. And when there's a disruption, it grieves God. And if you want a picture of of, of what the outcome of a lack of unity is, look out there. If if, if anybody here is not aware that we are a fractured people... Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about the church, I'm talking about the United States of America. 
if you aren't aware that we are a fractured people, we are not a united people, that's what happens when there's a lack of unity. May that, may that never be found in the church. Paul literally says here, the stealer, the kleptone, the one doing, the, the one stealing, the one who is doing this behavior, that one, that individual, must no longer steal. Now, what's interesting is that he doesn't call he doesn't call this individual or individuals out by name. Maybe he didn't know who they were, or maybe there were too many to list. But what was likely the case is that there was at least one, possibly more, people who had this ongoing practice of stealing. And it wasn't a one-time thing. It had become something of a, of a pattern. And it was currently <clears throat> an ongoing problem. And so we see Paul, we see Paul labeling him. He, this, this individual has been labeled and he is to be identified by that fruit of his actions. So whoever he was or whoever they were, he was habitually taking something that wasn't his. And what some have suggested, and these are both these are both plausible, is that the culprits were, one, they were merchants with a penchant for, for cheating their customers. And there are a number of ways that this could have been done. Um, they could have... Uh, uh, they could have used unequal weights. You know, you buy something that is labeled as a pound, but it's really 15 ounces because it's been improperly weighed. Mm. I mean, when you go to Safeway and you buy those bananas at 79 cents a pound, you trust that scale is accurate. If they were selling perfumes or wines or oils or any kind of a liquid, they could have been just ever so slightly diluted with something. So that, at the end of the day, hopefully the, the difference is so minor, so meager, that it was basically unnoticeable. And the customer, does, the customer is not upset because he doesn't know any better. And the merchant has a few extra coins in his pocket and his revenue is just a little bit padded. That's one possibility. Another suggestion, and this is one that I... I, I suppose is true. Uh, I, I think this is the more probable of the two, because I can I can somewhat sympathize with this second group. Somewhat, day laborers or, or those who had seasonal work, who when when the season when the work season came to an end and the work stopped, they no longer had means to support themselves and provide for their family. There was no welfare system in the ancient world. And so, no money equals no food, no food equals no life. Mm -hmm. And so from their point of view, if there was going to be bread on the table that evening, it was going to have to be acquired somehow. So steal it. And so in all, in all likelihood, I, I would think Paul isn't speaking to the first group or any kind of bandits or jewelry thieves or, or ne'er-do-well pickpockets, you know, like villain-type people. I think he's speaking directly to people who, in some capacity, felt they were entirely justified in helping themselves 
to taking from what was rightfully someone else's property. They were the Jean Valjeans of the day. And to them, to, to, to these people who, depending on who you ask, you might think, you might hear a response that they were justified. That what else could they do? To these individuals, Paul says, look, you have got to stop this. This isn't right. Justified stealing, justified theft, isn't how Christians live. And so it doesn't matter if the system is broken. And believe me, the Roman system was entirely broken. There were all sorts of injustices and, and, and expressions and, and uh, gestures of unfairness that happened on a regular basis. It was entirely broken. But it doesn't matter if the system was broken. And it doesn't matter if the poor were incredibly poor. And that the rich were, were <coughs> unimaginably rich. And there was just this massive divide between the two groups that just wasn't fair. It didn't matter that it just isn't right that some people had absolutely nothing while others had so stinking much. It didn't matter. Because while it may be true that it's not right, in the final analysis, theft is still theft. Stealing is still stealing. Theft and stealing are wrong, and you don't right a wrong by committing a subsequent wrong. And so even if whoever Paul is talking to, even if he was working for the Jeff Bezos of his day, does anyone know how much Jeff Bezos has? 191.5, don't forget that, .5 billion dollars. I would say unequivocally he is the Solomon of our day. Possibly the, the, the richest man to have ever lived. Even if you work for that man, and you, and you have... Nothing to put on your table for dinner this evening. You don't steal from the man's warehouse. That's, that's what Paul would say. Now scripture warns about the shortcomings of theft. Proverbs 13.11, the first half says, Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles. Money that isn't earned has a way of getting out of a man's hands more quickly than he would realize. It doesn't last, it's never enough, and there's always a need for just a little more, and, and, and for just a little more theft. And even what's even worse is by employing this short-term solution, long-term problems accumulate. And how many people have lost jobs and ruined friendships and even ruined marriages because of just a little theft? The ends do not justify the means. And, and the end result is often far worse than where they were at the beginning. Proverbs 20.17 says that breath obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man, but afterwards... His mouth is full of gravel. I, 
I've never done that. I mean, maybe I did when I was a kid. I don't remember. But I can't imagine it was a, a satisfying experience when my stomach was grumbling. I can't imagine it's anywhere, anywhere near as enjoyable as eating bread earned by honest work. In fact, honest work is precisely the behavior Paul says the stealer is to replace his sinful behavior with. And I love how, how practically helpful the Bible is in our sanctification. See, what Paul is doing here, really, in this whole little mini-series, with each of these vices, Paul is not some irate parent who only barges into his child's life to say in frustration, Stop it! Just stop it! And then, in frustration, close the door and go away and leave it at that. Right? Paul is not that irate parent who is who has an abundance of reprimands, but a but a, a shortage of instruction. Paul, rather, with his reprimand, and his reprimand is gentle and sufficient, but with that reprimand, he provides helpful and practical instruction. Effective instruction and correction and training must not only identify what, what must not be done, but also what to do instead of what not to do. And what are we to do? What does Paul direct us to do after reprimanding the, the thief? He tells, tells us to start sweating. Start sweating. He who steals. Still in verse 28. We're not going to leave verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. And, and instead of stealing, here's, here's what putting off the old man looks like. Here's the behavior replacement that we've been talking about. Instead of stealing, the Christian is now to labor. The Christian is now to labor. He is to work. And not just work, he is to work hard. He is to put effort, he is to put backbone into his work. And I, I know... I know that uh, uh, like McDonald's and Burger Kings and those, those burger joint employees got a bad rap for just being um, uh, low quality employees. I can remember so many movies and commercials from the 90s that, that had this stereotype, but, it, but it's in my head and so I use it, of this kid who, who, who couldn't care less about the quality of his work. And what he does is not laboring. Laboring has the idea of toiling, of working so hard that one becomes exhausted, worn out. Isaiah 40, 31, the, 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 Sept, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses this word. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. And they will mount up with eagles, with wings like eagles, and they will run. And here's the word. They will not grow weary. It's the same word that Paul uses for labor. They won't come to the point of exhaustion. They won't be worn out. They won't collapse. They won't faint. Many Christian t-shirts have this verse. 
as some sort of a, of a creed or a motto for their workout regime. Ironically, that, that, that has nothing to do with Isaiah's talking about. Isaiah's talking about mental and spiritual strength. The, the inner strength to, <laughs> to persevere and to continue doing what you know is right, even when there's a cost to do that. Even when there's a cost to cling to the Lord, this is the strength that clings to the Lord no matter what. That's what Isaiah is talking about. What, what Paul's talking about is, is that when it comes to your body, Paul, who's, who is inspired by the same Holy Spirit as Isaiah was, Paul says, wear yourself out, right? So Isaiah is saying, in your heart, you will not be worn out. Paul says, in your body, you better be worn out. You better get exhausted. Work so hard that you are absolutely tired and drop to the floor when you get home. And maybe you know, a little exaggeration, but I'm trying to drive home the point. Work hard. Earn your living. Do work that is worthy of your paycheck. And, and if possible, do quality work that even exceeds the amount of your paycheck. Toil and, and work hard and be effective with your effort and be efficient with your time. And here's what not to do. Here's how we work hard. We don't get distracted when we're on the job. We don't do half-baked work. What we certainly don't do, which is prevalent in the workplace, is we don't do just enough to not get fired. We don't do just enough to keep the boss off our back. Just enough to stay under the radar. Rather, Christian ethic tells us that we might even approach our boss. And we might ask our boss, sir, where can I improve? Where am I lacking? How can I do better? How could I do better for you and for the company? How could I make your job of managing me easier? Paul says to work hard, to labor, to excel at your job. And in other, in other places of scripture, we're told to do, uh, I think, uh, uh, Ephesians 6.4, I think. So we'll cover that later. But we're told to do your work as though you weren't working for a human employer, but for the Lord himself. Now, a little introspection here. How many of us, if we were to think that way, that I'm not working for a man or for a woman, but I'm working for the Lord Jesus Christ himself, one who, who is, we are told, going to judge all things perfectly and righteously. How many of us, if we were to remind ourselves and know with full understanding that we are working ultimately for him, how many of us would make changes to our punctuality? How many of us might show up to work five or ten minutes earlier? How many of us would actually stay as long as we're supposed as long as we're being paid to stay anyway, instead of skipping out five or ten minutes early? How many of us would have to adjust the quality of our work or the truthfulness behind what we say at work or the way we respect our employer or the way we represent our employer in our company? to our neighbor, to our friends, or to the public? 
How many of us would be concerned what the Lord would find when he inspects the integrity that we have? The amount of time we spend on social media or YouTube or Netflix or Facebook or Farmville or whatever, whatever they're doing these days. I mean, we, 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 we carry around basically a little entertainment device with us everywhere we go. At the school that I worked at in California, there was a young man. The, the, the restroom was, was on the other side of the wall of our classroom. And the young man would occasionally spend up to ten minutes in there. And the teacher would have to go over. And that was his cue to get off his phone and come back to work. What a sad commentary. Ephesians 6, 4, Colossians 3, 22 tells us that as, Paul uses the word slaves, but you could say as employees, we aren't to work with, with eye service. And that, which is to say that we don't only stand up straight or put our back into it or bring our A game only when the boss is looking. That's working with eye service. We're to work rather as every gesture and contribution we make in our jobs is being applied towards the one who will judge all things perfectly and righteously. The Christian employee is to work hard, he is to work efficiently, and he is to work sincerely. And so Christian, start sweating. The Christian man is not to be a lazy man. He is to be one who works hard. And by working hard, he is to be one who provides for himself and for his family through his work and through his earning a paycheck. Food being put on the table ought to be the fruit of his labor. And he shouldn't have to rely on someone else to provide it for him. And it's, an, it's another sad commentary where we have men who are willfully unemployed. They choose to remain unemployed because they can make, and, and I think this is perhaps another example of the brokenness of the system. I, I don't know. I'm not an economist. But people can make just as much, if not more, on welfare and unemployment rather than going out and provi providing their own means of income. And just within the last six months, with both, when both stimulus checks were issued, I saw reports that temp agencies were struggling to find people willing to work. For many people, they, got, they already had their paycheck for that month, so why, why work? Take a couple weeks off. That's a horrible work ethic. And it is certainly not a Christian work ethic. It's a shame that that happens in the secular world, no doubt. It is an absolute travesty when that compromised ethic or, or, or any ethic where a man justifies his, his needs being met by being a mooch or by being a leech on others who actually do the work. It is a travesty when that ethic is found in the church. May that ethic never show its head in the Lord's church. Scripture reprimands. It rebukes 
and it scolds and it seeks to correct one who can work but doesn't. This was a, this this seems to be a reoccurring problem in Thessalonica. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 to 12. We urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition. So he, he's not just asking or instructing. He's urging them. This is, a, this is an urgent plea on the apostles' part. To make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands. And watch, mark this, just as we com- <clears throat> commanded you. Apparently, he had to inst- instruct them while he was there in Thessalonica. And sometime later, I don't know if it was six months or a year, he has to remind them of what he, he commanded them while urging them to do it again. So that, says Paul, you will behave properly towards outsiders. And not be in any need. Apparently, being in need and becoming a dependent upon others when you didn't have to be, Paul says that that is behaving improperly towards outsiders. And this is one way when 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 professing Christians are lazy. And when they steal in this manner, accepting resources from others when they could do it themselves, that laziness is just another way that the world can look at us and say, those Christians are no different than us. They do the same things we do. So it, 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 it didn't sunk it, sink in when Paul commanded them when he was in their presence. And it also apparently didn't sink in when he had to remind them in 1 Thessalonians 4. Because we read in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and following. We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. And not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow your example. Our example, rather. Because we, we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day. So that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we didn't have a right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. So maybe, let me correct myself just a little bit. Maybe at this point, they themselves weren't still being lazy, but they were associating with idle and lazy individuals. And at least within, Paul's concern was within the association of Christian believers, there were those whom the outside world could look and go, those Christians are hypocrites. They, 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 they say one thing, but they do another. They're lazy. They're all talk. So Paul says, don't even associate. Keep, keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. Says Paul. 
For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. It's not a suggestion. It's not something to be taken under advisement. It was an order. It was, it was authoritative instruction. Mark this. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Ouch. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Busybody could be a meddler. It could be someone who was preoccupying themselves or becoming busy with things that really didn't concern them, things that they didn't have any business being busy with. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion. Why does he say that? I, I think uh, uh, that there are some people who, uh, when they are reprimanded, when they are told to do this, kind of in, maybe in a passive-aggressive way, they're like, fine, I'm doing it, I'm doing the thing, I'm doing what you told me to do, look at me, everybody, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Cheer me up. <laughs> Paul says... Do your work in quiet fashion. Don't, don't boast about it. Don't, don't be proud and, 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 and make a, a cause for celebration for the fact that you're doing what society and what really, what really God is expecting you to be doing. Don't pat yourself. Don't, don't uh, wrangle your arm trying to pat yourself on the back for doing what, you should, what you're supposed to do. with such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. And Paul's, Paul's uh, exhortation could be summed up as earn your bread and now eat your bread. Now Paul, Paul said that they didn't, that they didn't uh, not accept money not because they didn't have the right to. He could have expected monetary support from them. And from some churches, he did. From some churches, he, he gladly received monetary support, either for himself or those with him. Um, or I think from Macedonia, he accepted money to take back to the, the saints in Jerusalem. As an apostle, he had every right to accept monest, monetary support. But with this, with this lot of people... He didn't. And perhaps in his time with them, he saw quickly, or he had gotten wind of something, uh, of a poor work ethic that needed, I mean, he, 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 he was aware of, of the blight that this would become uh, in the reputation of Christ among Gentiles and among pagans. And he says, that is not okay. This needs to be corrected. And not only am I going to instruct them, I'm going to model for them at my own expense when it is surely inconvenient for me to do so. I'm going to make an exception for them and I'm going to model, <coughs> model for them the very thing they need to be doing, even though it's costly. That's what good teachers do. That's what good disciples do. That's what good parents do. Paul says, if someone isn't willing to work, he doesn't deserve to eat. In other words, an able-bodied man who isn't doing something productive and who isn't trying to find a job, a job 
just a man who is unwilling to, to even to, to do a job even though it's a lame job, even though it's a bad job, even if it's a job that this man wakes up every day and just groans in his soul and loathes going to every every day. I've had jobs like that. Who has anyone not had a job like that? I mean I I'm speaking to common people, right? I've had jobs that in my soul, first thing in the morning, I just go, The man who is not willing to do that, Paul says, that man isn't willing to eat. Or he's not qualified to eat. A man who is willing to do nothing ought to receive nothing. Even, even from the church. Even from the church. That man is not a candidate for charity or for handouts. Because doing so would only reinforce and affirm his, his laziness and his negligence to provide for himself and for any who might depend on him. Now, caveat time. This doesn't mean that there won't be extenuating circumstances or times of extraordinary need where the church needs to respond to. Some may unexpectedly lose their job and have a hard time finding another one. And while, while the clock is, is ticking, and while that man is looking for another job, there are bills that need to be paid now. That's an extenuating circumstance. Another man may be barely making enough to make ends meet, and then the family van goes out, and there's just simply no way that the budget can accommodate uh, either the repairs or the purchase of an entirely new vehicle. Another man may be involved in an accident or become sick, and now he has needs that he and his family had no way of anticipating and preparing for. And when these extenuating circumstances happen, and there are other kinds of extenuating circumstances, the church body, it is the church body's prerogative, and it is the church body's delight to come together and help meet those needs, because that's what Christians do. You know that last week we prayed for two families in our church which are very dear to us. And one man approached me this week and told me how how such a blessed time. He, he was, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to put words. It was the most, uh, my summary of what he said was that that was one of the most edifying and uplifting experiences he had had in church in a long time. Mm -hmm. It is the church's prerogative and joy and delight to come together and to meet the needs of those who are legitimately in need. But when a man who can work doesn't work and he accepts handouts, whether it's through the church or, or through welfare or through other, through other means, when he, when he does that to support himself... 2 Thessalonians 3.16 says, That man is stealing. He is stealing money that is supposed to be going to someone else. Someone who, who really does have legitimate needs. Somebody who can't provide for themselves. 
So that man needs to stop stealing and he needs to start sweating and he needs to start working with his own hands. Look at what Paul, let's go back to Ephesians 4.28. Look at what Paul says to do. I, I just read it, so I just told you. He must rather that that, and when, when Paul says rather, that, that's, that has the idea of in one hand, you, you're, you, you have in mind what you're, not, what you're supposed to stop doing. You, you don't do that, but rather you, he must labor, performing with his own hands. What is good? This is what repentance looks like. This is what repentance looks like. I want you to notice that Paul draws our attention to the hands of the thief for a reason. Why? Why do you think? I don't answer the devil's work. Yeah. But I mean, more specific. What has he been doing with his... So what has he been up to this point? He's been a thief, he's been stealing. What has been the, the instrument of his thievery? What are the means by which he has stolen? Hands. His own hands, which have up to this point been accustomed to earning money unjustly, the, the means of his sin now need to become the means of his doing what is right. The hands that have been for so long skilled at acquiring, as the King James says, filthy lucre, needs to start acquiring clean lucre. The hands that have up until now stolen need to start earning. The hands that have done evil now are to perform what is good. Now, what? let me ask you another uh, follow-up question. What does God call good? What, what do you think a good work is in this context? I would say, and you, you can get this from looking at... Uh, uh, was it Ecclesiastes 3, Charlie? What was that verse that, that jumped? Yeah, Ecclesiastes 3. You can also get this from 1 Peter 2 and chapter 3. That working in an undesirable job with undesirable circumstances and even working under an undesirable boss and bringing home a less than desirable salary. I would say all of these passages tell us that if that miserable lot that you have been handed, if it brings home honest bread and puts that bread on the table honestly, going to that lousy job and bringing home that pitiful paycheck, I would say is a good work. If it puts honest bread on the table and provides for self and for family, God says that is a good thing. Now, working hard to be self-sufficient isn't the extent. This is not where our instruction ends and we go no further. On the contrary, 
there is more good to be seen from the fruit of our labor. We are not only we are not merely to stop stealing, we are not merely to start sweating, but we are also to start supporting. Still in verse 28. There are some sometimes where we go into fifth year and we do like three verses in one session. <laughs> now the thief who is accustomed to taking from others needs to stop stealing, start sweating. And he needs to work hard. And by working hard, he, he gets ahead. And he becomes anchored in his finances. He becomes stable in his income. So that, here, here's, here's our purpose clause. And what, what, what is the most frequent question that parents get from their kids? And it's not, uh, the second one is how long? What's the, what is the most frequent question you're asked? Why? Why? Well, Scripture anticipates the why, and we, we, we know that Paul is answering a, a, an expected why because there is a, there is a purpose clause. There, it, 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 their way of saying this is why. So that he will have something to share with one who has need. That's why. You work hard, you get ahead, you accumulate, you save up, you get raises, you, ha you, you have a pension, you, have, you, you, you accumulate stuff so that not only do you provide for yourself and for your family, but also so that you are in a position where you can share what you have and give to someone who has need. And instead of unrighteously posing or imagining himself to be one in need, the thief who is, who is now a Christian has the prerogative and the... Well, actually, every, every Christian has this, this prerogative and privilege of working to generate resources. Working to generate resources so that as opportunity comes, and they come, so that as opportunity comes, he can give, not take, that's, remember that, that's his old life, but give to those who are legitimately in the position that as the thief, as the crook, as the stealer, he supposed he was in. You see, what Jesus is doing, just as he, he turns... Liars into truth speakers. He turns ang uh, uh, angry sinners into those who, who use anger righteously. Here, we, Jesus is taking takers, and he is, by, by his power and through the gospel, Jesus Christ takes these takers, and he turns them into givers. He turns leeches into supporters. Con men into contributors. That is what salvation does. It turns sinfulness on its head. It changes who the sinner is from the inside out. And this individual, who through his actions had previously said, this is what he communicated through his actions. He, he previously said, you are here for me. You have something I need or something I want, give me. That I means that's 
by stealing, that's what he is communicating. And that person becomes, he, he stops, he ceases being that individual, and he becomes one who says, because he now is working and generating resources that he has of his own accord, he now says, I'm here for you. And I have something that I think you could use. So please, here, take this. That is, that is the behavior replacement. That is what repentance looks like. That is what sanctification looks like. And just as a side note, he doesn't do, he, he, he generates this money himself and he does it rightly. He doesn't do anything unscrupulous to be in a position to benefit others. He's not doing the Robin Hood thing where he steals and then justifies the stealing by, by doing some noble act and giving it away. No, this is his own money. The emphasis is his own hand needs to work. This is, this is one of the reasons why I, I am insistent um, on the evils of, of socialism and communism. Both of those political platforms are, in essence, being generous with other people's money. That, that's, what, that's what they are. It is taking from what other people have, and then you are being generous with it. The Christian makes money by his own hands, by the sweat of his own brow, and with the money that is rightfully here is, he shares some of it. And this is just an interesting uh, thing I walked away with. Paul doesn't use the typical word for give, he uses the word for share. Not didomy, he uses metadidomy, share, which specifically has the idea of just imparting some, but not, but not all. And we see this word used. Uh, we see this word used in Luke three eleven, where Jesus says he, he's sending his uh, two out. And he says, "He who has two tunics is to share with him who has none." He doesn't say, "Hey, you have two, give both of them away." No, you have two, you have a surplus. You have one extra. Share what you have out of your abundance. And he also says, "He who has food is to do likewise." Well, I, I just bring that up because I don't, uh, there has been for a while, ever since really like the third or fourth century, there's been this, this idea that, you know, if you're really a Christian, you're going to sell everything you have and you're going to live a life of self-imposed, self-imposed poverty. And that it's, and that it's inherently sinful just to have stuff. No, it's not. No, it's not. And what you give away is up to your conscience. It's your decision what Peter said to Ananias in Acts 5.4. The sin is not because of how much he chose to give away. The sin that cost Ananias his life was that he lied. Peter says in Acts 5.4, while it was unsold, was it not yours to do with as you wished? Let me, let me just give you my closing minute. Let me just give you an image to help motivate you. 
to apply this. Mark 6.3 tells us that Jesus was a carpenter. He was a craftsman. He worked, and he worked hard with his hands. And this is what he did until he began his public ministry. I mean, there are a number of places where um, if people had the opportunity to accuse him of something, they, could have, they, they would have. And we never see anyone coming out of the woodwork and saying that Jesus was a slouch and a lazy man. And he never did a day's, uh, an honest day's worth of work in his entire life. No. Until his public ministry, he worked in Joseph's shop and then perhaps on his own if, if Joseph passed away. I want you to think how lowly, how much of a condescension it was for the, for the creator of the universe for the one who spoke things into being. That's a skill that you and I don't have. Think about the condescension, the, 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 the lowliness that is inherent in God adorning human flesh and then taking up a hammer and making furniture for a living. Adorning himself with a human frame, with muscles, with a cardiovascular system, and, and with those muscles, making things, and crafting things, and by the sweat of his brow, providing for himself. And, and this just came to me. Uh, I remember at the end of John, he, 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 had, he uh, entrusted his mother to John. And that tells me he was probably the main source of income for his mother up to that point. I can't prove that, but that just came to me. And so no matter how much you may dislike your job, I can guarantee you that you and I haven't stooped so low as to step down from the high place of heaven to make Ikea products. And so look to him. If you are struggling with contentment with whatever your lot is, Look to him and remember his example for you. First Peter 2, uh, 21 and 22 says that he left himself as an example for us to walk in. Remember his example. Look to him. Be content with your lot. Humble yourself if you need to. And get to work so that you can provide and give to others. Let's pray. Lord, help us to turn from lives of, of dishonesty and thievery if, if there be remnants of that in our lives. Give us the integrity to work hard and to do all things for the glory of the God who has called us and saved us to be his own people. Lord, help us to, uh, just in the same manner that Paul modeled himself for the Thessalonians, Lord. Help us to remember that you modeled yourself for all of your people. And help us to follow your example. Amen. Well, as we come to a close today, we just stand up for one last song. And today,